The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com. And you're very welcome to the RTE Rugby Podcast after round two of the Guinness Six Nations Championship. Ireland going down to France. Wales just about getting past Scotland and England doing a job on Italy once again. Delighted to have Bernard Jackman and Wesley to talk all things rugby. You're very welcome, lads. Um, Birch, France... Was that the game that pretty much has them in the driving seat to win the Six Nations Championship, do you think? And looking at on the evidence of the first two rounds, do you think that there's anything that Scotland, Wales, or indeed England can uh, put up that would uh, stop them from winning this championship? Look, absolutely they can get beaten. They're not um, uh, they're not machines, they're human. And, and we saw some of the errors they made, which which led Ireland into the game. Discipline is still a big work on for them. They... Uh, they have improved, ironically. Um, Sean Edwards is is really trying to drill a defensive um, system that doesn't give up penalties easily, but yet plays on the absolute edge uh, of in terms of the offside line physicality. They brought in uh, Jerome Garces, who was obviously international referee. He's full time with the, with that group, not just uh, refereeing training sessions, but also building relationships with the with the referees. And this has been a big issue in France for a long time. And I um and I and I know I know from my time in Grenoble is they, f- they feel that the referees that they come across at international level or in European Cup or Challenge Cup don't understand um, the language, the nuances of, of French rugby. So having someone like Jerome Garcia there to talk to the referees the week of the game and to be able to give feedback. Um, but on a, on a peer-to-peer level, I think has been a um, a really smart move by Galtier and, and, and Laporte and even as many smart moves they've made. So, um, look, they look the best team in the competition, um, but yet they, won't, they you know they have to go away. And, uh, you know, we know French teams traditionally throw in one wobbler, um, particularly away from home. So I don't think the competition has done and dusted, but I think they are the best team. And, and for me, they're the team you'd most like to be, uh, be supporting you know, we'll look to the future as well because I think they, they can get a lot better. What's really interesting about Garcez, you know, <clears throat> the fact that they brought in Sean Edwards originally, I think Birch was a kind of a statement that, look, maybe we need to just widen our span here yeah. and look outside of, of what has been typically a very insular approach to rugby from France, like we do our own thing and sure, screw everybody else. The fact that they are so willing to embrace change and a difference of approach, I think just makes them even more dangerous, doesn't it? Yeah, no, they've got a really good balance now and... um and they're much more they're much more open. There's a really good little mini series on 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 on, uh, on YouTube, which is following them in the Six Nations, and you get little little insights into some of their um, uh, how would you say it? Well, some of their training sessions, some of their meetings, um, some of their rituals around player to match, etc. And you can see there's a real close bond, but also they're open. They're open, and, and I know some of the RT crew were over in in Paris, and um, you know the French public, eight point five million people watched it, uh, watched that game um, at, at the peak part of the audience. Um, you know the atmosphere, the the bond now between the fans and the and the team is growing stronger and stronger, which hasn't been the case. I mean, you know, you you you've been over there, um, you know, for over the last ten years, and there was apathy towards the national team, you know, and uh, and even in within the playing ranks. I mean, players didn't enjoy going into camp uh, because the setup wasn't good. They weren't united. There wasn't a game plan. So there's a lot of things happening um, now. And I was, I was interested. I was listening to uh, Morad Bougel, who used to coach, uh, the president of Toulon and yeah. obviously brought, brought it on. And look, he talks a lot of shit, but um, he's saying now, like it's, it's, he said, uh, 
it's common sense that France are good. I mean, it's the it's the best league in the world. Um, they've the most players. Um, and uh, you know, people shouldn't be saying talking about the All Blacks. Should be talking about the All Blues over the next ten years. And 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 realistically, we've always said it. If France got their act together. Um, it'd be very hard to stop them, and, and now they are getting their act together. Um, so yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how w- what teams can can put a stop to that. Oh yeah, and I completely agree, Wes. We've been waiting for France to get their act together for quite a long time, a bit like the Dubs, you know, before they eventually got over the line in 2011. I guess we've been saying they have all the raw material in terms of players, in terms of how much passion they have towards the sport. If they got a head coach and a system in place whereby they could get the best of the sum of the parts. And that's what's happened now. And look, I think it's great for rugby. Like, definitely. Since since the game went pro, I think people have been saying that France, you know, they always had the ability on a one-off basis that maybe, you know, I suppose originally there was a hope that maybe professionalism would take some of the kind of idiosyncrasies out of their game and they'd be consistently able to produce that. Now, ironically, they probably, it took too much of the idiosyncrasy out of their game for a long time. But I think when you look at where the top 14 is, is at the minute, I think when you look at the, there's, it's a bit cheesy, but there's a huge sense of destiny and momentum about this current group building towards that World Cup. Yeah. I absolutely think, I mean, if, if they were to win a World Cup, which I think there's a long road to that, I, I think the potential is there for them to become an absolute powerhouse of the game, without a doubt. And like what's very interesting again, and I know this is a little hobby horse of mine, and like... Even a country like France, 60 million people, you know, a massive economic powerhouse, even they have seen the benefit of widening the net and going to non-traditional areas as much as possible in terms of, you look at the input into their team of guys from New Caledonia, Wallace and Fortuna, the old French colonies, Birchland know a lot about this. And equally within France, you look at the kind of, I suppose, you know, immigrant communities, they've tapped into where players you know, that weren't traditionally producing rugby players in the suburbs of Paris and places like that. Even a country of that size and scope has seen the need to kind of expand beyond the dominant gene pool, the benefits of that in a contact sport like rugby. And I suppose when we were kind of beaten up a little bit again the other day, um, in the long term, from an Irish point of view, we don't have anything like those resources, but we do have kind of a diversity in our population we've never had before. And it's kind of... uh, it's very hard to understand how we are not attempting to to dip into that ourselves. Is it easier for France to do it though, Wes? Do you think? Is it easier for them by pure by pure uh, by, by, by pure dint of numbers? But yeah. but equally, um, I mean, we're seeing a little bit of it accidentally here in Ireland now with guys like Daniel O'Keke, maybe and, and Elo that was with the twenties last year. But mm. like rugby is the only professional team sport uh, based full time in this country, so there's huge opportunities. It's actually people's job to to cast the net wide like this. So, I mean, you'd, you'd really like to see some some targeted talent uh, identification and development on that front in, in the long term. It's not going to solve anything for the World Cup in 18 months, but I just, it's an absolute no-brainer at this point. I mean, Bert, you've written, you know, since the game on Saturday about um, the fact that your opinion is that we, we need to expand our strength and depth even more than we have done. And we certainly have made inroads in that area over the last couple of years, but you, you feel like a stronger squad pool could only benefit us ultimately. And look, I, I guess this is a, a way of trying to identify talent as well as we're saying, going outside the normal areas, maybe the Leinster schoolboy system, going out and trying to identify what it is that we need to make Ireland a better rugby population. Yeah, look, at I, I think um, I thought, I think Ireland are on a really good um, 
upward trajectory. I think we've got a style of play that will mm. challenge teams. I think uh, we've got, you know, very committed players um, and they, they showed unbelievable character to stay in the game, etc. But if you're talking about winning championships, um, so look, if you take it this year, Wales, Wales are on a, on a on a bit of a rebuild. England are on a rebuild. So this is a championship that's there for the taking, even though we have to go to Paris, which made, made it difficult. But think in 18 months' time at a, at a Rugby World Cup, if we run into France again, um, how are we going to overcome that? Like, I think if you're France, you're going, and you're if you're Fabian Galtier Monday morning, you're reviewing that match, and you're saying, how did, Len- or how did Ireland get a, a bonus point? You know, how were we even under any pressure? Because most of the things that, well, the, particularly the set-piece collisions, um, they were absolutely dominant, and and that generally, you know, leads to to building a scoreline and, and and being dominant on the scoreboard. So, I think that for us, if we if we we can either do two things, we can either go, wow, look how close we got, yeah. we're on the right track, which a lot of people go, are doing, which a lot of people yeah, are no, doing. No, they are, and I look at, and I'm not knocking this team. I think they're yeah. they are given everything they have, but also, like, what's winning games now? So, you know, Marcus Smith, right? Obviously, England are hyping him up, right? But he has X factor. Lucy Samus has X Factor, uh, Finn Russell, Stuart Hogg, they have the ability to, to, to have moments of magic. I think I think for us, there's two things we need to look at. Okay, well, who are the most, um, how, what players in Ireland have the most X Factor that potentially could get into that team um, that in a big game could have that moment of difference that, that wins you the game when, when, when things are very evenly balanced mm-hmm. and likewise our, our bench. So like, uh, so we've gone for a very conservative bench um, and, you know, our, our contracting um, decisions have been very conservative, you know, uh, given central contracts to, to Peter Manny and, and, and Conor Murray and Keane Healy's obviously going to go to the World Cup and Keane Healy's still a really good player, but is he able to give us the impact off the bench that you need to win test matches now? Uh, um, and likewise with some of, some of the others. And, and I mean, I, I think the fact that Farrell kept Porter and Furlong on to the 73rd minute um, would lead you to believe that he doesn't feel that they have that impact. I mean, you know, seven minutes isn't really, uh, isn't really a- enough. Um, most, most international front rows get changed in 60 minutes. And there's a reason for it because normally 60 minutes is the maximum that anybody can give and, and, and to be able to stay at a high level. And then you bring on fresh legs. France changed for front five after 55 minutes. But mm. I think if we go to that World Cup with, without finding some new talent, um, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult. Uh, and likewise, in the second row, you know, um, decisions that's going to have to be made around can we become so good technically as, a, as an eight that we can overcome that obvious size and power deficit or do we need to actually find um, a second row partnership who have a bit more power and bulk to be able to, um, I suppose, withstand, uh, you know, along with obviously a very smart tactical technical plan to be able to withstand a team like France. I mean, people won't say see that the set-piece uh, was it was a uh, an issue because there was only actually eight scrums in the game, five for France, three for Ireland. On Ireland's ball, we'd always be fine. We'd be able to channel one, play away from it. France only had five. Um, they played off three. They won two penalties off two, but they never had a scrum close to our line. If they had of, you know, that ball wouldn't have went out. That that yeah. would have led to that would have led to penalty, penalty, yellow card, maybe a penalty try. And that's what we have to be thinking about in not just 18 months time, not just World Cup, but next year, Six Nations. Um, and, you know, the, the reality is, okay, and I think it goes back to your to your kind of overall recruitment strategy. So, for example, uh, we signed Paul Willemsen when he was in, uh, when he was 19 years of age to come to Grenoble, right? We yeah. weren't, we weren't thinking about him as a, 
as a French international, we were being very selfish and he fitted into our academy and he wasn't a foreign player, etc. But Paul Willem said, 19 years of age, if you had have asked the smart people in South Africa, they would have said, he could be a springbok, right? Okay, so he could be a springbok. So I'm talking about the quality of your selection. And no disrespect to John Klein, um, but John Klein was brought in as a project player to be that tractor, to be that Paul Willem, so that Bucky's Boda, that maybe we don't produce uh, naturally in, in, our, in our gene pool, etc. Um, but John Klein, if you ask people, because he was a bit older at that stage, you know, he was a very steady player, but he was never going to be a, a springbok. You know what I mean? So um, Antonio, who's obviously, so they've got two non, they've got two project players as such who have become qualified to play for France because they have passports. Antonio is a 150kg tight prop who can move. Right, who can who can who can move yeah. really well? Um, so they've basically found two players outside their gene pool and outside their talent development pathway, which is phenomenally strong, who can make a difference. And for us, unfortunately, it's too late now to talk about project players, but we need to we need to basically really identify young athletes who have the potential to to make a difference in in three, four, five years time. Which is where you know France are benefiting from the decision that was made about Vidimsa you know, uh, seven years ago, Antonio, 10 years ago. Um, and that's probably something that, that hasn't happened. We're, we're just content to go through the same things. And also, sorry, go back to the bench. If you're going to make changes on the bench, you need to make them now. Um, and you need to try and find players who can come on in the last 20 minutes of the test match and turn the game rather than protect the lead. I, a prime example of that, Wes, is I was watching the game after uh, Wales got in Cardiff with a couple of, ex-internationals, not just Irish, but Welsh and Scottish internationals as well. And they all made the same point when Conor Murray came off the bench. They said, well, you know, why is this guy still on the Irish bench? Why isn't Nathan Doak on the Irish bench? Why isn't that young guy, Casey, coming on the Irish bench? Why isn't even someone like maybe Kira Marmion coming onto the bench who can impact and change a game? Because Conor Murray, and this is their words, for their impact, I'm not going to name them, Conor Murray cannot change the game sufficiently to take Ireland from a losing position to a winning position. He might be able to stem a tide. He might be able to keep uh, Ireland's lead protected to a certain degree, depending on their tactics, but he's not that kind of a player anymore. Why is he on the bench? And I didn't really have an answer to that. Yeah, I suppose it's a fair point. Um, you would think, you know, the, you, you would think maybe the roles reversed to the two nines makes more sense in some ways, but obviously Gibson Park was playing well for the most part and he lets them play at a certain tempo which they're not going to find the solutions to this power thing in the next 18 months. So they actually need to double down on playing at that tempo. But yeah, like I suppose there was an interesting snapshot and it didn't really mean anything, but it was kind of symbolic in some ways is just after both teams made a couple of changes, the very first action, uh, Tamifuna comes through and destroys that mall, which leads to Cyril Boy's try. Um, and in the same instant, Peter O'Mahony, who just come on as well, goes off with a HIA after it. It was kind of, just a, a small indication of the different impacts the two benches had, but like I suppose if just come back to what Birch said there about Antonio, like I remember talking to Mike Prendergast about this, who's obviously worked with Antonio a lot, and like he was, I said this about Will Skelton after the Larishell game last year with Leinster as well. Antonio, if Antonio was coming through the ranks here in Ireland, he wouldn't make it. He, he he'd he'd his he wouldn't be fit enough. He wouldn't be. He wouldn't fit the profile they want in terms of his weight. Um, like they just wouldn't persevere with him. Like I'm. I'm not saying the two are the same now, but like my friend guys immediately said to me, he reminded him of Tony Buckley from Liverpool. Right now, I know Tony Buckley arguably cost monsters and games with his scrummaging and things like that. But 
you do still kind of go, Jesus, like, was everything done to facilitate that guy having the kind of impact he could have? Like, I mean, it almost became a matter of fact last week in the Irish media, like, thrown out there routinely that we had the best front row in the world um, and that Andrew Porter was the best loose head in the world. And look, he may very well be, and they may well be with time, but, like, on the basis of what? Six or seven internationals. Um like, no one was talking about the French front row, yet for the 50 minutes or so, he generally stays on the field. You'd argue Antonio has a bigger impact on games than even Tyke Furlong has. So, I, I don't know. Like, I, we look at things a little bit differently and, and we are a bit insular. And, like, I, I hope I hope there's not the same level of fanfare over Joey Carberry that there was around the front row for the next couple of weeks. Well, yeah, I don't think there will be. I, I, I guess... You know, and a snapshot of that as well. I've been reading and listening to a lot of the reactions to the match over since Saturday, and particularly over the last couple of days as well, Birch. And I, I, I there's an awful lot of excuses being made for James Ryan's decision not to go into the corner for Joey Carby's input in the match. Conor Murray was also on the pitch as well, and I just I can't buy it myself. I absolutely think it was absolutely the wrong decision to take the three points when you're six points down. You have them on the back foot, an opportunity to go over and score a converted try. And I, that, that, it really frustrates me because I, I, people are saying, well, the pressure of the moment, you don't know what it's like. They were out on their feet, decision-making. That's bullshit as far as I'm concerned. They absolutely made the wrong decision. Andy Farrell, I understand he has to back his players, but in the post-match comments, he said, oh, I back the players their own decisions. Instead of saying, no, we got it wrong here. We should have gone into the corner. We lost the game. It's not the be-all, end-all of why we lost the game, but we absolutely made the wrong decision in a crucial moment. Yeah, look, I think that it would be interesting what he said on Monday. Um, around that, I I can understand totally why he would back his players post match, but yeah, I I hundred percent agree it was the wrong call. In fairness, the the French the French the the impact players the French made had actually they hadn't found a rhythm at all, no. um, and they they were a little bit shook. They were very shook actually, and you would have fancied Ireland, um, to maybe not score directly from the mall, but Ireland are, are traditionally good. You know, when they get five yards out, and it would have led to penalties, and it would have meant that we would have finished the game. You know, down in there, twenty-two with a chance to score, try and win the match. I think that they got a breeder under the post, um, they got a message on, and they, you know, they, they they accepted the three points gladly and went down there and finished the game very strongly. You know, so it's it's about momentum. It's about you know uh, taking advantage of when you have uh, when you have things going your favor, and also the opposition are a little bit uh, shook. And France were at that stage, but I thought the, the break under the bench, apart from the three points under the post, gave them a chance to regroup. And in fairness, if the game had gone another five minutes, you know, I, I felt France would have pulled away. I mean, they were totally back on top again. And obviously the Jaminet try, I mean, it probably it not, it probably is a try. You know, um, if the referee doesn't make that decision for the TMO, I think he got it down on, on the way. But um, uh, yeah, again, Sexton's there. He makes that call. He goes to the corner. And again, it's that leadership that we just need to develop. Um, and sometimes it has to come from the sideline. I mean, you know, you could actually hear on the ref mics someone shouting, kick, take the point. So I don't know, did that decision come from the coaching bench? Um, and that was, and the players were just doing what the coaches want. But I, I think in future, we go to the corner there and that's the right decision. Even if you don't score, it's the right decision. Yeah. Well, Sorry, Hugh, Hugh, there was, I just, I read a piece on last night and it was interesting. I want to see what you think of it. But Duncan Casey, the ex-Munster hooker, yeah. called him in the examiner. And he said, the take the points or go to the corner debate is one of the most frustrating elements of post-match analysis from pundits, journalists and supporters alike. That's because it always ignores everything but the final outcome. 
whatever decision was made and whatever the feeling on the pitch was in the moment, if it doesn't result in a victory, then it was automatically the wrong call. Like, yeah, surely that's exactly the point. It, it, you know, I don't, I don't get, like there's people saying we can't have moral victories, but yes, they're saying judging that decision on anything but the outcome is foolish. Like, I mean, I just... But that's nonsense. That's, that's like, Duncan's a very bright guy, but that, that, that's not... That's not Surely the, the outcome is makes it a right decision or not, no? No, no, yeah, but you have to. No, you can't just you can't just de- de- deliberate on decisions around uh, around um, whether we won the match or not. The, 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 you have to make you have to judge those decisions at the time. You know the context of the game. Do you want to win the game? How are France looking? Um, are you likely to get back down there and get two more scores? Probably not. Uh, you know, I, I felt we, we just scored a try after half time from a mall. You know, I I, I think I think you, well, I'm certainly judging it on my good feeling at the time. Um, was kicked the corner, and I'm but not everyone, worried about. Everyone, everyone had a pair of eyes. I was, I was sitting in a, in a car of um, marquee, and everyone groaned when Ireland took the shot. Like, it's just Welsh and Scottish fans groaning. I saw what people put what happens. Oh, you're you're all great with your after timing, saying it was great to the corner. No way. Everybody with a pair of eyes could see kick to the bloody corner and go for it and try and win the game. You need two penalties with seven minutes to go just to tie it up. What the hell are they doing? But I mean, Ireland, in fairness, Ireland, Ireland over the last three or four years have have traditionally gone to the corner, and sometimes we don't score. Sometimes yeah. we don't score directly. Sometimes went to the corner at twenty two fourteen as well, and they lost the line out, so or whatever it was, twenty one fourteen. So what so, though? So what though? Like they were spooked. You know. They were spooked. You'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look. Anyway, look. And it has been analysed to death. I'm sure. You know, <laughs> the next time they have that opportunity, I'd say it might be a different outcome as well. Um, but you as well, in, in fairness, like as Birch was saying there, like there's that school of thought. And like, I totally agree that it was a really valiant performance from Ireland. It was an unbelievably daunting atmosphere and opponent. Like, I think there was real bravery, resilience to stick in there. And yeah, you could say they were missing Johnny. They could have gone to the corner. So, but but this idea that they left it behind them, like every time Ireland had a big moment that France needed to respond, they did. When Ireland had that line out in the corner, France stole it. When Ireland got to within three points, France went back down the field. And as Bart said, Jamine scores that nine times out of ten. So this idea that France were completely floundering, panicking, exhausted, no, I, I don't I don't think that's doing anyone favours to look at it just through that lens. Okay, a couple of selection decisions then uh, that I'd just like to get your thoughts on before we uh, wrap it up, uh, Birch. Is there an argument for starting Ian Henderson and Tyke Byrne in the second row? Um... I think there's an argument for starting Ian Henderson and James Ryan in the second row and moving Tyburn to six okay. and moving Doris to eight. I think. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I think that's if you, like the reality is. Um, yeah, I, I think that would give us uh, more, a little bit more. Look, Conan has been very good. He just had a poor game against France. So, um, whereas I thought Doris didn't have a great game, but he he stayed he stayed in the fight more. He, he you know, and I think he's got. More long-term um, potential. Burn. I think you have to keep burning the team because of his football and building. But I just looking at some of those scrums again. Um, uh, you know, I think a, a partnership of Tig and Hen and and James Ryan will always have our, our our front row under pressure against the bigger pack. So that that'd be the change I'd be thinking about. Okay. Um, even though that's very harsh on Conan, and he, and I think you know, uh, but I'm thinking to be the best we can possibly be. Um, that's that's one change that uh, I think um, may need to be looked at. Wes, on the second rows before I move on to my next one. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I not yet. They're in the middle of a championship, so I suppose it's hard to know how much they're going to be tweaking things. But um, I suppose looking to 18 months' time, you're trying to identify players that can make a difference and, and get them involved in some shape or form mm. more so over the next few weeks. And like, That's an interesting one, I think, moving, moving Doris to eight. Uh, again, notice there's nothing against Jack Holland, who's been brilliant as well, but I just it would be interesting to see those two in the second row and Ty Byrne at, uh, at Yeah, and it, it would add a bit of size, obviously. But I mean, mm. I, I, like I, would, I would wonder, would guys like Ryan Baird and Gavin Coombe certainly, in 18 months' time, are they guys that can add value? Or Ken yeah, I think starting so, that yeah. process now. Yeah, okay. Second one for me, and Wes, you can start with this one. James Lowe was probably going to be featuring for Leinster this weekend. If he comes back into the mix, does he come back in? Is it Mac Hansen and James Lowe on the wings? Do you stick with Conway and drop Hansen for Lowe? And um, what's your reading of the back three? Tough call, actually. Yeah, isn't it? Um, isn't it? Yeah, what would yeah, you do? I mean, Lowe on the November form probably does have to come in. Um, Got two I wingers suppose. with X Factor there, but like you know, I don't know. Does Conway deserve to be dropped? I don't know. Like it's all fair on him. Conway's overall contribution might be bigger than Hansen's, but yeah, I mean Hansen does seem to have that X Factor. But yeah, it's really competitive there with with Keith Earls and Balakoon and a few others as well. What so. would you do first? Um, I'd love to see Balakoon uh, at some stage in this championship, and not just against Italy. And mm-hmm. that's again just rewarding someone on form, seeing how good he is. We know what Conway and Hansen can do now. That they're both, you know, very good players. Um, but maybe Balakloon has just that extra layer that can, you know, that, that match-winning ability. Like, the thing is, I, I, I think I said, like, I think Dupont, uh, Intimac, Penno, Villiers, uh, Jamene, Fiku, uh, Vakatara, Mofana, Teddy Thomas. Nice. <laughs> no, no but they, they, no, but they all have, if they're playing against you, you're going, if one of those has a has a top day, they could actually just win the game on their own. You kill know what I mean? And kill, kill you. you. And yeah. you know, and and and, and I think Balatloon is someone that puts fear into into the opposition. Um, but we don't know if he can do it at the top level yet. But if we don't mm-hmm. find out, if we don't find out in eighteen months' time, if we don't our next year Six Nations, if we if we're just you know a really good team who have loads of character, well drilled, but we come short against power or X Factor. We're going to be saying, oh, well, you know, um, why haven't we changed things? And, and that's like we're, we're going to be de- we're going to go down to the wire in the Six Nations uh, um, to the last day as contenders, which is absolutely brilliant. And we may win it. But if it's at the it, 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 I think we can still have a look at some guys uh, without risking any of that. Yeah, fair enough. OK. And the final uh, one is, is Dan Sheehan. Then we don't know the extent still of the, the shoulder injury uh, to Kelleher. This is what uh, Dan Sheehan had to say, speaking to Mick Glennon after the game about his uh, about his uh, time in Paris at the weekend? I think it was a great build-up to the game. Uh, you know, we came into Paris on Thursday, and from Thursday, I've seen more Irish than French, I think, and I've heard a lot of the Irish speaking rather than French. Uh, thought the build-up was class. I enjoyed every second of it, but uh, it's a different, it's a bit of a different gravy when you're coming into the Stade de France. Uh, the noise is a different level. Uh, it's whatever thousand people there against 15 of you, so... Uh, I enjoyed it. I got, got a good buzz off of it, but obviously didn't come away with it, so it's been mine. And you, you obviously said said on to co- you think in your head like that you're probably going to come on in 50, 60 minutes. So w- when you get called in, what's it like? I mean, are you all set, ready to go as soon as you get the nod? Yeah, I think so. I think um, you know the back backroom staff and the coaches do a good job of making sure that the bench has been primed to be ready whenever and you're not sitting back just waiting. Um, 
you know, you're uh, on the bench, you're doing a job, you're following the game the way it is going, and you're, you know how it feels. So when you get on, you should be straight into the flow of things. Um, obviously, yeah, coming on in 20 minutes, you know, we have a, a bit of a shift ahead, but it's, nothing changes, I don't think. How much of a step up was that compared to what you've experienced before on the field? Um, I suppose I haven't played in many tight games or games that I've been behind in this season at all. Uh, with Leinster or Ireland, I think all games that come off the bench or the games I've been involved in, we've been ahead by a few. Uh, so coming on, I knew that, that we'd have to start doing something different or get back into a game because pressure on us and I think it maybe at times got to us slightly uh, got a bit flustered didn't get into our flow but you could see at times when we did get into our flow we were dangerous uh, and we scored points but uh, huge learnings I think for us because you know this how most of the lads here haven't been chasing the game or behind and I think we did a good a good job for a lot of the time not even all the time but to to get back and to uh Give, us, give ourselves a chance, please. The tackle technique, are you like actively aware are you to getting getting a hand underneath? Like, is it the minute of of getting it underneath and hoping that he doesn't get it down, or it, you just giving him a hug and seeing what happens? Uh, well, I suppose when you're when you know he's going to be over the line, by the time you have to get your hand to the ball, if I go for his waist, you're not getting like there's no point. So uh, in that situation, you know you have to get at least something on the ball, and then it's just it's just wrap as tight as you can. Uh, so yeah, I, yeah. Don't know. I think it's just natural. What, what's the approach now for the rest of the championship? Uh, I think it's take our learnings from today. Yeah. I think we can work on a number of different things, and then I think it's attacking every single game. We get like we're one step behind now, but you know the, the tournament is definitely not out of reach. Um, I think it's going into focusing straight onto Italy. We have two weeks in the in the lead up to it, and we have to make take full advantage of that game and, and make sure we're firing and also there's. So that's Dan Sheehan there. She must have been impressed in your position here. I mean, the fact that we now have two top choice hookers is brilliant. I mean, Ireland, you can interchange all of them, right? Yeah, you can. You can. Uh, I still think Keller's a little bit further ahead in terms of scrummaging, um, and that's just a little bit more experience, a little bit more density. Um, but you know, Sheen was outstanding. I mean, he he had a huge, uh, huge game, and he, he's someone, he's someone that is going to have a big part to play for for Ireland. Um, so yeah, he, he's he's an exciting player to watch. But I still would have Keller slightly, slightly in front. Wouldn't you absolutely? If you're Gregor Townsend, lads, <clears throat> last one on this. Um, I was as I said to you, watch the Wales match. If you're Gregor Townsend, Wed, Wes, you'd be absolutely pulling whatever hair he's got left out of his head with frustration. Scotland limped around the pitch. It was so obvious earlier on that they just thought, we're going to win this game. And they must be so. If you're a Scottish fan, after beating England at home, to go to Wales and this Wales team and lose in the manner in which they did must be so frustrating. Kind of becoming quite typical of them, I suppose. Like, Yeah. Like, they've definitely made big strides. Uh, you know, the whole entity of Scottish rugby has made big strides over the last 10 years in terms of provincial form, national team competitiveness. But, yeah, there seems to be a bit of a glass ceiling there from this just inconsistency. kind of Yeah, them, really. it's like this first. You know, the graph goes up and down and up and down. They, they want it more straight, surely. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And uh, But he'll, 
like his job is to find um to find a solution to that him and his coach they now have a decent very well statistically it's the best defense um around in, in Steve Tandy's um defense with Scotland uh, they have the capacity to have some brilliant attacking plays but it's that it's that consistency that's letting them off I don't think you know, there's been some narrative that all are talking themselves up and stuff. I actually don't think that's coming from the playing squad anymore. I think they've copped that on. But certainly, certainly they'd be disappointed they didn't back up a, a very strong Kakuta Cup performance um, with another good performance. And if they had, had to put in a good performance, it was good. They would have beaten Wales. I mean, Wales yeah, weren't. Yeah. Wales were far from from brilliant. But uh, they're still a dangerous team. And and you see Glasgow. Glasgow had a good win against Munster, Edinburgh poor against Leinster, but they're having a really good season. So um, they've got a bit more depth than they've had traditionally. Listen, we'll be relying on uh, Scotland probably to beat France and give us a, a sniff of winning yeah. the championship. Lads, URC this weekend, uh, Leinster against Ospreys live on RTE television as well. We'll be back next week to preview uh, Ireland against Italy to Bernard and to Wes. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com.